Hello, and welcome to Small Black Birds. I'm AJ, and in this episode, you will hear stories about three larger-than-life people, each one a truly unique and memorable character, who rejected following the crowd and popular trends to carve out their own space and style, and left a mark in their field that will not be soon forgotten. You would be hard-pressed to find a group of individuals more distinctive and unique than Slick Rick, Dr. Oliver Sacks, and Marie Catherine Colvin. Each one, in their own way, sought to create a different world, and relentlessly followed their convictions to make it a reality. Along the way, they transformed challenges into exploration, risk into reward, and fear into determination. Let's start with the one and only Slick Rick. Like I said, it's like pressure and inspiration. Remember, when I was coming up, you know, I'm a little, little something, something. You start off slow, you know, you get a little ring and a watch, and you wear like shirts and ties. You hide the fact you can't afford to change yet, but nobody will know that. So when you see like covers of Rakim and Eric B, you know what I mean? And you see the big chains of more multiple sizes, you say, listen, I got, I gotta get that. I can't afford it yet, but I'm gonna get that. I gotta get that, you know what I'm saying? He's known as the Liberace of hip-hop. A TED Talk hails him as the most sampled artist of all time. The Smithsonian exhibits his trademark eye patch. Who else but Slick Rick, one of hip-hop's most recognizable icons, could boast of such honors? From his legendary characters and cutting one-liners, to his over-the-top and bigger-than-your-head jewelry collection, Rick the Ruler is an original MC from the golden age of hip-hop. While the Cuban links were large, it was his skits and storytelling and hits like Mona Lisa and Children's Story that set him apart and is recognized as the foundation on which performers like Nicki Minaj and Eminem built their careers. Telling stories, stories is my field, you know, so I'll probably stick with the stories, take it in whatever, whatever moved the heart, you know, whatever moved the heart is where I'm going to go, I'm going that direction. I, mean, I ain't never going to give off no bad, no bad rah-rah, you know, I might say a curse or something like that here and there, you know, nothing to really offend nobody or nothing, you know, just going to move the soul, you know what I'm saying, just move the feet, have fun, live life while we down here and all that, and that's that. He has been referenced countless times in pop culture, and his smooth lyrical delivery on the 1985 track Lottie Dottie which details a tongue-in-cheek encounter with his ex-girlfriend and her mother, was an overnight sensation, and would serve as inspiration and sample fodder by generations of artists like Snoop Dogg, Kanye West, The Notorious B.I.G., and even Miley Cyrus. A lot of times the music tells you where it wants to go, with the story. You know, if it sounds like this, then you go that way. You feel It's like connecting the dots. You go where, where it complements each other. Once you're inspired, you just fill in the hole, you fill in the spaces. You write the story, any part that seems boring, edit it, fix it, whatever. It's really like you entertain yourself, it's really like you're talking to yourself. Because if you, can, if you entertain yourself, then you present it to the world. While Rick found fame and fortune in the US, he was actually born to Jamaican parents on the outskirts of London. When just 18 months old, an accident with a broken window left him partially blind in his right eye. The injury made an impact on his personal development and eventually the history of hip-hop. He became shy, and rather than play outside, he stayed indoors and began writing stories. But everything changed after he turned 11. Rick and his parents moved to New York City, and he embraced the creative forces of his new hometown. Because I'm from England, when I came in 76, I was like a nerd. I was like Ron Howard trying to be Fonzie, you see know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I wanted to incorporate all that 
African-American swag. I wanted all of it. He eventually started to rhyme at local hip-hop shows where his persona as a joke-telling, sunglass-wearing MC started getting noticed by club audiences and Def Jam Records, the era's biggest hip-hop label. I used to wear like a contact lens, anything that camouflaged, you know, the eyes, because the eyes is kind of messed up, you know what I mean? And then gradually I just started wearing, I was wearing the Ray-Bans for a while, and then after a while I just said, I'm just going to wear the patch. And then the patch seemed to caught on, you know what I mean? So I just stuck with the patch. While still riding high on the success of his first studio album, Rick was arrested on charges of attempted murder in a complicated case involving his cousin, who had tried to extort money from the rapper. No one was seriously injured in the incident, but Rick pled guilty and served five years and 12 days at Rikers Island. The prison term would trigger a decades-long pursuit by immigration officials to deport Rick back to England. After a lengthy legal battle with immigration, in 2008, the then-governor of New York officially pardoned him on the attempted murder charge, saying, Rick had become a symbol of rehabilitation for many young people. He would eventually become a U.S. citizen and an inductee to the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. While Rick no longer sets the trends that others follow, he continues to make new music and is committed to raising the consciousness of the community. Well, it's like it's like carrying the culture, you know what I mean? So I feel like we're carrying the culture and we try to keep it with substance. So feed the audience, feed our audience, show, show the value of the urban community that still has the value and worth, you know what I mean? Now let's listen to Dr. Oliver Sacks' story. Well, I work at hospital and in all of these old age homes where I also work, there are a lot of people who have Alzheimer's or dementias of one sort or another. Um, some of them are confused, some are agitated, some are lethargic, some have almost lost language. But all of them, without exception, respond to music, especially to old songs and songs they've once known. And these seem to touch springs of memory and emotion, which may be completely inaccessible to them. And it's most amazing to see people who are out of it and suddenly respond to a music therapist and to a familiar song and and first they will smile and then perhaps start to keep time and then they will join in and, and sort of regain that part, that time of their lives and that identity they had when they first heard the song. Music occupies more areas of our brain than language does. It can persuade us to buy something or remind us of our childhood. And yet the power and meaning of music is so much more. It lies so deep in our nature, beyond the explanation of science, that its mysteries will likely never be fully understood. Grasping at the impossible never deterred Dr. Oliver Sacks. A neurologist and professor by trade, and as idiosyncratic as his many clients, Sacks spent 40 years studying the brain's peculiar and complex pathways. Reflecting his personal familiarity with suffering and alienation, Sacks was fascinated by the uniqueness of individual people and applied his acute powers of observation, curiosity, and compassion to grow our understanding of the human condition. I have a need to look at people who've uh, perhaps through no fault of their own, through biological chance, have been thrust out of the, of the mainstream. And in general, to see the tremendous adaptability of the human organism and the human spirit in extreme situations. Sachs authored numerous books exploring the mysteries of music, memory, and consciousness that revolve around his dealings with persons who have neurological conditions and brain injuries. 
He upended the traditional doctor-client relationship by pursuing a holistic approach to treatment that included visiting their homes, watching them work, and sharing meals together. In his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, where he describes working with a person who has visual agnosia, a condition that left him unable to recognize people or objects, Sachs tries to help the reader see the world from the man's perspective and from the points of view of those who care about him. They, they sort of said, tell our story or it'll never be known. They felt very neglected. I love the feeling that these forgotten people who are so important, you know, can have a sort of afterlife, you know, and they themselves would like that. At his best, the neurologist in Sachs observed his clients as inroads to greater understanding of scientific phenomena. The writer in him captured their stories, and the humanist explored their meaning. But colleagues accuse Sachs of breaking medical convention by becoming too familiar with his clients and exploiting their vulnerability for personal gain. I'm addicted to patients. I, I can't do without them. I need to have the feeling of, of, of these other lives which, uh, which become a part of my own. Um, empathy isn't enough. I wish I could be in their shoes or know more exactly what it's like. Despite the criticism, Sachs' technique has been adopted by many practitioners. As an astute listener and observer, his work serves to bridge the gap between us and people who we might see only as their condition. I went down to Gallaudet, this, this extraordinary university of the, of the deaf. Deaf people from 82 countries converged. I think there were something like 9,000 people there. It was extraordinary to see people with 80 different languages, 80 different sign languages, make communication with each other. I mean, there is this precious other world, this special community in our midst, and I think it's, it's lovely to encounter them, to go to the theater of the deaf and to see something of deaf arts. And there is a rich world there, which we don't learn about unless, unless we make an effort. In 2005, after a career of being the observer, the doctor suddenly found himself on the other side of a physician's gaze. It all blew up in December of 05. I was actually in a cinema at a time, and there was a sudden explosion of light and color in one eye. I'd never had anything like this. I phoned an ophthalmologist friend who said, get yourself seen straight away. After more tests, his eye doctor confirmed that he had a malignant tumor in his right eye. Sachs was shaken by the diagnosis. I was tremendously shocked by all this. I think anyone is shocked if they're given a diagnosis of cancer, even a relatively benign cancer. The cancer made me think about death in a way which I had not done before. At least made me think that there was a time bomb, a threat inside me. Soon after, Sachs began radiation therapy that eventually led to the loss of vision in his eye. Sachs wrote about his own experience and that of others who lost the power of speech or the ability to read in his book, The Mind's Eye, a fascinating exploration of fundamental human experiences. Before his death in 2015, he released an autobiography where he revealed that he was gay and had spent decades in closeted loneliness and celibacy, finding love only later in life. It was an unexpected but fitting coda of a man who delighted in uncovering life's mysteries. I would like it to be thought that I had listened carefully to uh, 
to what patients and others had told me, that I tried to imagine what it was like for them, and that I tried to convey this. And to use a biblical term, the feeling he bore witness. Our last story belongs to Marie Catherine Colvin. I went in, went up to the border and went in with um, some of the Kosovo Liberation Army people. And I remember just that, a sort of week of in this barracks just across the border. Absolutely bored to death. BBC Radio, read the two books I had, talked endlessly over cups of coffee, and then walking out about a week later with the KLA rebels just into the dark. And you know, you know, there's mines all over the place. They have AK-47s, the Serbs have artillery, planes. And that's a very long way of getting to what is fear. I remember every single step thinking, well, we could be shot, because you, you almost brace yourself for, we could be shot, and you just, you just keep walking. But with that little thing behind you saying, okay, we could be shot in any moment, but I'm gonna keep walking. Part of it is that the other people around you are walking. Part of it is you're never gonna get to where you're going if you acknowledge fear. I think fear comes later, when, you've, when it's all over. I don't know where the idea that news reporters are supposed to be bystanders, simply relaying facts and figures to an audience. Because the world needs more journalists like Marie Catherine Colvin. A war correspondent who cared little for war strategy, Colvin often placed herself in the world's most dangerous places to bear witness to the excessive cruelty of conflict and to make us take notice of the human cost of war in ways we could not forget. You see on television, from NATO or from Pentagon briefings, about precision bombs through the years, certainly long before I started covering wars. What's on the ground remains remarkably the same. Craters, buried houses, bombed houses, women weeping, dead children, suffering. The pain of war is really beyond telling. I don't think I've ever filed a story and felt I got it. For Colvin, an American-born reporter who lived in London, covering war wasn't about doing a few interviews and firing off cliched soundbites for the evening news. She experienced conflict alongside the people who suffered its consequences, in places like Lebanon and Chechnya, oftentimes ignoring her own instinct for self-preservation to shine a light on stories that others could or would not tell. Whatever the rights and wrongs of a conflict, I feel we fail if we don't face what war does, face the human horrors, rather than just record who won and who lost. After cheating death in East Timor and Kosovo, Colvin earned a reputation among her colleagues for fearlessness and for vivid frontline reports that could come only from someone who dared to see and experience war without any filter. I still don't think of myself as a war correspondent. I think that term is very restrictive. I, I've been in a lot of wars, covered a lot of wars initial definition of war correspondent is someone who covers wars, but to me it makes it sound like what you're doing is going out and, you know, how many tank shells uh, fell on um, this Chechen village today. That's not what I think of myself as doing. I, I think, you know, war is about what happens to people. A lot of other things happen to people. I, you know, I've covered famine in Ethiopia and other places like that. There's not really a term, I suppose, I am a war correspondent, but, but more by default, because the what does happen to people in a situation like that is, is what interests me. Colvin was a charismatic figure known for her wit, having a cigarette at the ready, and trademark eye patch, which she wore after being shot while covering the Sri Lankan Civil War. I lost my eye in an ambush in Sri Lanka. I'd gone to the um, northern 
Tamil area where journalists were banned and, and found an unreported humanitarian disaster, I felt that risk was worth it. As I was smuggled back across the internal border, a soldier launched a grenade at me and the, the shrapnel got my eye and, and my chest as well. In 2012, Colvin was among the last foreign-born journalists covering the Syrian civil war from inside the country after the government began targeting journalists to prevent the cruelty of the war from reaching the outside world. She filed reports for international audiences with her satellite phone from underground bunkers and while on the run with the men, women, and children whose lives had been destroyed by the war. It's really never been more dangerous to be a war correspondent because journalists in the combat zone now we're facing not just um, rockets or bullets, we've also become targets. Just days after posting a report that went out to the world about a baby receiving medical care at an apartment in Homs, Colvin was killed by Syrian forces determined to silence her. Since her death, the country's civil war rages on nearly a decade after it started, and over 400,000 people have been killed and millions more displaced. Credited for resetting the war narrative away from battlefields and tanks, Colvin made it impossible to look away from the people trapped in conflict's crosshairs. While her life's work proved costly, her legacy will inspire generations of journalists who must decide what type of reporter they want to be. There's just a lot of injustice and people being killed with no, uh, maybe documentation's the wrong word, but almost, you know, say this is going on. If you can document it or, or bear witness to it, that somehow you can make a difference. And, you know, even sort of 15 years after starting this job, I still think that that's what matters. Larger-than-life people like Slick Rick, Dr. Oliver Sacks, and Marie Colvin set the bar high for others to follow. Their stories have the power to jar us out of ordinary thinking and show us that, if we choose, we can be bolder than we believe and can achieve more than we thought possible. Thank you for listening to Small Black Birds. Please keep the conversation going by contacting me, AJ, at smallblackbirdspodcast at gmail.com or at smallblackbirds on Twitter. Stay safe and talk with you soon. I was blind all the time I was learning to see